And it's Genesis 11. Terah took Abraham his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and he died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out from the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was there in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev. Let's give Karina a good welcome, please. Thank you for your welcome. It's lovely to be with you this morning and enjoy our worship with you. I bring you greetings from Tunbridge Wells Baptist Church, which isn't very far away. We're a very different sort of congregation, but uh, I'm sure we're all in church on a Sunday morning because we want others to come and know the Lord. I want to thank you for your support of BMS World Mission, for those of you who pray faithfully and to those of you who give faithfully. BMS is not what some people call a faith mission in that we don't send the missionaries out to raise their own support, but David Kerrigan at BMS headquarters would say we are indeed a faith mission because we believe, we have faith that the people in our churches will trust us with the money to do the work. So you're part of that work. For your interest, uh, down in your, I hope it's down, I'm never sure where I came from, but in, uh, in your coffee hall, I've got copies of Engage magazine. They're entirely free. You can always have it free if you sign up for it. There's uh, promotional material about joining up with BMS. Do come and talk to me afterwards. And I bring you a letter from Jill and Harland. I emailed them and I didn't get a reply. So I emailed them again and I didn't get a reply. And on Friday, this came through. They say, apologies, our internet connection is terrible and we've been travelling a lot without the internet. We have an action team here who are helping with building the rubbish bins, a waste management project 
eco stoves and water filters. They're doing a great job and we love having them around. Unfortunately, we're having a a problem finding good clay for the eco stoves, so we may need to adjust the design to see if we can make them without needing clay. There's something you can pray for. We finished our first year-long training program in December last year and have had the first workshop for 2013 this week. The idea is that each year we will reach out to a different group of communities. This week there's been a fantastic turnout and the whole week has been very encouraging. The training centre is functioning, though this week we realised we need more space, praise the Lord, to accommodate those who come to the workshops. For the first time we needed to go out and buy more mattresses and we're looking at ways of increasing the sleeping area. The water system for the training centre is now up and running, which has been great this week. It's a rainwater-dependent system, but it has rained just enough so the toilets can be flushed, people all get their showers, and the kitchen has running water. The next workshop will be in March with Pastor Neil Brighton from Poynton Baptist Church. Personally, we're well, though we've all been down with colds. Lilia starts school in March. She's the younger of their two children, and... Ingney will be at home educated at least for the next year. I'm sure you've read their prayer letter which said they thought the the pressure of the local school system was something they didn't want to inflict on Ingney. We plan to be back in the UK from June to August this year. Harland is struggling with a strain injury in his left hand which we would appreciate prayer for. Please pass on our thanks to the church for all their support. We really do appreciate it. That's a letter for you, specifically. Don't let them down and don't forget to pray. So when I was thinking what I should talk to you about this morning, several pointers directed me to the expression comfort zone. I wonder what it means to you. Is it your cosy bed or your comfy sofa, the feeling of security you have within your own family? Is it eating familiar food or the peace you experience when you're able to close your own front door? Is it the service you've given in your church or community for years and you feel really comfortable about because you can do it backwards? I wonder what leaving your comfort zone would mean for you. I've got some friends for whom camping, uh, like I was telling the children about in the woods, would be a step too far. I like my creature comforts, they say. I would like us to think briefly about that family we read about who lived in a big, well-built city, A big, sophisticated place with all the benefits of a safe environment and good law, just like Orpington or Tunbridge Wells or London. But I'm thinking about Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a city nearly 4,000 years ago in the part of the world where early civilizations grew up. I remember visiting the British Museum and seeing the collection of breathtaking treasures from the death pit at Ur. Wonderful, amazing things. They're still there for us to go and see. 
and realising that this was a rich and ordered society. When Abraham responded to God's call to leave his town, his country, and go to a land I will show you, it was from Ur that he set out with the security of his extended family. The family didn't have Abraham's sense of calling, and when they reached another city where life was also comfortably civilized and their own moon god was worshipped, the city of Haran, that was as far as they got. But after the death of his father, and isn't it hard to go against a father, Abraham recalled the promises that God had given him. I will make you a great nation. That needed a lot of believing. When Abraham and his wife were old and she had always been barren. I will bless you. Would the family feel blessed as they left the easy city living, all the mod cons of their day, and set off as nomads to live in tents without their community around them? I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed by you. What huge promises. So Abraham set out again from Haran, leaving his comfort zone. The city where he fitted in, where he got on with his neighbours, where no doubt his family were nicely settled and had everything they needed. And where was he going? To the land I will show you. Can you imagine the questioning, the polite laughter behind the hands, the sympathetic looks at the family, the suggestion that this childless old man was beginning to lose it, the anger of those family members who didn't want to leave and didn't want to admit that their faith wasn't as great as Abraham's. But Abraham knew and trusted the God who had called him and who would lead, guide, and care for him and fulfill his promises. So he set off into what was for him the unknown. So many heroes of the Bible were called in exactly that way to go where God called and to do what God had planned. Moses first called to leave his shepherd's life. I sometimes wonder what happened to those wives. And then to lead a rebellious tribe away from the comparative security of Egypt towards a land promised but not seen. Gideon, a farmer, called to lead an army despite his hesitation. Ruth, a widowed housewife, called to leave her family and her familiar country. And we reach eventually our Lord Jesus, sent by his Father God, away from the glory of heaven, so that he could demonstrate his Father's loving nature to a hostile world. Following Jesus has always presented Christians with the need to move into a new life of trust and obedience with the same sense of security as Abraham, knowing that where God calls, he will lead, guide, and protect us as we set out to the place where he wants us to be. When William Carey, a shoemaker and aspiring preacher, understood God's call to the whole world and to India, 
he had to convince his fellow clergy of the rightness of his interpretation of Christ's great commission. They thought that it really only applied to the nice people around Northampton where they lived. He knew it meant to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all mankind. Arriving in Sarampore, near Calcutta, in 1793 with his wife, her sister, and four children, his efforts saw no converts for seven years, and many disasters befell the small team who had arrived from home. In his History of the Baptist Missionary Society, Brian Stanley writes this. I'm going to read it to you because it just staggered me. The deaths of missionary colleagues and members of their families placed further strain on the missionaries' faith. William Grant's death in October 1799 caused Ward to question the purpose of God in leading Grant on a 15,000-mile errand to convert the Hindus and then cutting him off on the threshold of his work. Within a period of 12 months in 1811-12, the mission lost 10 persons by death including Ward's daughter Mary, Joshua Marshman's infant son William, and three children of John Chamberlain, who had joined the mission in 1803. To these grievous human losses was added the crowning blow of the Serampore fire of the 11th of March, 1812, which destroyed some of Carey's most precious manuscripts. You'll remember he was translating the whole Bible into the local languages and a large collection of type founts and paper. It was entirely characteristic of Carey that his report to Andrew Fuller of this providence passed rapidly from the fire, for which Carey wished to give thanks um, to, sorry, from uh, the losses suffered to the list of eight merciful circumstances surrounding the fire for which Carey wished to give thanks. The eighth was the fact that all the missionaries had been preserved from discouragement. To Carey, the disaster of the fire was simply another reminder of the infinitely wise providence of God and hence also of his promises regarding the extension of his kingdom. Missionaries whose minds were thus captivated by the sovereignty of God possessed an extraordinary ability to transform discouragements into renewed incentives to faithfulness. I wonder if we apply that to our ordinary church life here. All our BMS workers today in many countries have reason to be grateful for the selection process we use, which requires a number of people to affirm God's calling on their lives. When disasters strike, when their task seems impossible... When surroundings feel intolerable, the assurance that members of Candidate Board have seen and affirmed the rightness of their calling helps them to remain in trust outside their comfort zone. I can remember in 1991 arriving in Nepal. Um, I was uh, in my late 40s. I was a primary school teacher. I was sent to live in a very remote mountain area of Nepal, and I can remember 
trekking up there. Um, there were no tourists in the area where I lived at all. And one of the paths went up the side of a mountain and there were pine trees down alongside. So as we got higher, we were looking into the tops of the pine trees. And I will always remember an eagle's nest that I was actually looking down into and watching the mother eagle with her chicks in the nest. And I'll just remind you of a couple of verses that uh, occur in Deuteronomy 32. He sustained him in a desert land, in a howling wilderness waste. He shielded him, cared for him, and guarded him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up and bears them Aloft on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. There were no foreign God was with him. And that was my experience. I remember writing a letter home and saying, it very much feels as if I've jumped off a cliff and I actually find I'm flying. But I didn't know I was going to until I did it. What do we ask of our mission workers when we send them? not just with Baptist Missionary Society, but with other missions. They need to learn a new language. There's not much progress you can make when you can't chat to your neighbours, although a sense of humour is essential and it doesn't always come easily. Some workers live in very nice, ordinary homes, while others may have far fewer facilities than they used to. Just imagine 13 hours each day with no electricity due to load shedding. No fans at the hottest times, no lights or any other electrical appliances, the need to keep rechargeable lanterns ready for use, the need to stay up late making sure you've used the computer while the power's on. There are many places where despite the availability of taps and washing machines and lavatories, there's no water. I'm thinking particularly of Kathmandu where I know from my experience uh, there are many people who have all these mod cons but can't use them because there isn't any water coming through the taps. Buckets have to be filled from outside wells or taps and used very frugally. Drinking and cooking water has to be filtered or sterilised before use and um, we won't go about toilets. For very many... Cooking involves a wood-burning stove and the careful use of firewood. While learning to eat unfamiliar and sometimes unpalatable food can be a challenge. I learnt to be vegetarian in Nepal because what goes into the stew pot is not the nice bits of the goat, it is all the goat after they've shaved the hair off. There is nothing that doesn't go in. And they give you pieces which, because it's been a sacrifice for them to cook it for you, you must eat. But you can gag over it hugely. (laughs) None of these changes to everyday living are given patience insuperable. We live among our neighbours and we can only share their lives if we're willing to live as they do and to share the difficulties that they experience while we try to demonstrate a better way. 
So why do workers go to unfamiliar and difficult places? There is only one answer, that they go because God has called them to share the knowledge of God's love and care with those who don't yet know him. Jill and Harland, with their two little girls, settled in their simple community in Iquitos in Peru in 2009. There they are again. And I've put two maps up just so you can see Peru over on the far side of Brazil as well as having the shape of the country there. They accepted the changes of lifestyle that this entails because they care about the people. They want to demonstrate God's love and they're supporting the work of the local church by facilitating training for pastors so that many more may come to know the love of Jesus. The new Nauta Mission Centre offers teaching to pastors and church leaders, many of whom have had little schooling or theological training. Uh, Here's some extracts, you may remember them, from a couple of their letters. The Nauta Training Centre has developed considerably over the last few months. We now have classroom, dormitory, toilets, and the start of a cafeteria and a second dormitory. And now you've heard they're running out of sleeping space. We hope to start the actual training program next year. Jill has been working with Pastor Louis to develop a curriculum for the first year, trying to decide which themes would be relevant to pastors and church leaders from river communities. One of the things that's becoming apparent as we discuss these things is the need for the centre to address deeply held local beliefs. Many of the pastors and leaders from river communities live in a reality which involves evil spirits and supernatural beings. One very common belief, for example, concerns the pink river dolphin, Bufeo, which does actually exist, but it converts into a man during the night entering the village to try to steal women. Other common beliefs involve spirits in the form of animals wandering around the villages at night, Whether the stories are true or not is not for us to say, but what we do hope is that the training centre will be a place where these issues can be discussed openly without embarrassment or fear. It seems the main challenge will be for the training programme to have theological integrity while at the same time adequately addressing these culturally specific beliefs and experiences. All development work, wherever you are today, responds not to what we think people need. We come as Westerners, Europeans, Americans, Australians. We don't tell people what they need. We go into their villages. We learn to live with them and alongside them and to ask them what they would like to change about their lives. And I know it's absolutely worldwide that where people live in abject poverty as subsistence farmers, they always say the same things. The first the women will say is, our babies die. It's nearly always because of dirty water. The babies get diarrhea and they die. Sometimes it's poor nutrition, which is not necessary. Then they always say, We hate having to carry water and firewood. I guess where Jill and Harland work, carrying water is not the biggest problem. But when the river floods, 
the sewage, which has not so far been managed, rises in the flood water and contaminates everything. And they absolutely hate having to go and carry firewood. I always remember a group of women in Nepal who'd come that were on their way back from the forests with their loads of firewood and they were sitting down and what they were smoking in their funny little clay pipes was actually marijuana. It grew everywhere in Nepal. You couldn't possibly avoid seeing it. And I passed by and chatted with them and they said, oh, come on, sister, have some of this. When you've had some of this, nothing hurts anymore. And you thought, okay, so they're like me. Their backs ache from carrying these huge loads all the time. And, of course, the, we all know the problems of forests being degraded. So the filters and the ovens are ways of combating the problems that the people themselves identify in their village. Clean water leads to better health and fewer small children dying. This year, a BMS action team, that's the BMS World Missions Gap Year program, um, has been assisting Harland and Jill, as they wrote in that letter, installing the first of their water filters in the villages. They write of the endless task of sieving the sand, which will be used to fill the containers, and re-sieving the sand. They wrote in December, this week we did some stuff, so sit back with your nice normal cup of tea and prepare to be amazed at just how exciting we can make sifting sand for five hours a day sound. Most of our time is spent perched on stools and sandbags in Pastor Santiago's house, sieving buckets of sand and then putting it in sacks to be sorted again at a later date. Watch this space. The work is quite dusty, and we all look vaguely apocalyptic in face masks. And three weeks later, they wrote, we headed back to Pastor Santiago's house, where we were relieved to be able to ignore the mammoth pile of sand. Despite good progress in sifting it the week before, it remains as big as a baby whale, in order to focus on the mould for the water filter. Our job was to sand it, wash it, and paint it a glorious red colour. With neither sandpaper, washing equipment, or functioning paintbrushes, this was never going to be the quickest task, not to mention the daily rain sessions which hampered the drying a tad. Nevertheless, three days, two trips into town, and some squashed toes later, we were able to look at our handiwork with pride. It's beautiful. In populations all the world over where cooking is done on open fires, the problems of cutting sufficient wood become greater. The time taken for trips to the forest are ever longer. The women complain of the labour involved. So stoves which burn fuel efficiently, carrying the choking smoke up the chimney, lead to use of less wood, less forest degradation, less chest disease and cleaner homes and clothes. The eco-stoves are much appreciated. Another one of our workers, Margaret Swires, left UK in 1985. She was a registered nurse sent to Brazil by BMS, where she became a church social worker involved in meeting the needs of the slum areas of Campo Grande through the Brazilian Baptist Convention 
And she became a much-respected mission worker. I've met her on many occasions, and she's a lady that I have great respect for. When BMS accepted that the church in Brazil is now largely self-sufficient and is uh, indeed sending missionaries abroad, I happen to know that there is a Brazilian occupational therapist currently working alongside one of our BMS workers, Megan Barker, in rural Nepal. That's the extent of Brazilian missionary involvement now. A decision had to be made to refocus BMS work on less reached South American countries. And the Baptist churches of Peru and Ecuador were keen to receive help. So in 2005... 20 years after starting her missionary service, Margaret was asked to relocate from Brazil to Peru to leave what was by now her comfort zone to learn another language, Spanish instead of Portuguese, and to head up the formation of a new team. With great grace and trust in God, Margaret moved and is now based in Lima, with the Peruvian Baptist Convention in Social and Family Ministry. She wrote um, about the programs that are being run by the churches there, the preschool project, I'm sure you've heard of Pepe, uh, which takes children from very poor families and gives them preschool education, which means when they're old enough to go to school, they can actually cope with being in school instead of just dropping out because it's all so strange. Um, so the, the Pepe pro- program has planted two churches, 174 children and 70 adults have accepted Christ and 22 have been baptised. Pray for Dora, the national coordinator and her team, that God would continue to enthuse them and they can develop the sustainability of the project. She recently wrote of the joy of sharing nine baptisms where the candidates testified to the transformation that knowing Jesus has brought to their lives. A 35-year-old lady called Jessica lives with her partner and three children in a very unhappy relationship, tainted by alcoholism and unfaithfulness. On top of that, she learned that she and her partner had contracted HIV. Jessica said, My youngest daughter had started going to church with a neighbour, and became very involved and happy. On finding out that I had HIV, suddenly there was a need for more. It took a while to find the courage to go to church, but it was a lovely surprise to find I was accepted and had another family to replace my biological family, who had abandoned me and my family. I learned a lot and accepted Christ as my saviour and his forgiveness. I decided to be baptised, and now I am different, happy, and thankful for each day. Some of you may have, like me, watched the recent TV series, Lost Kingdoms of South America, and you will have seen some of the amazing archaeological sites uncovered in recent years and seen the explanation of primitive rituals, of sacrifices made to God's thought to control agricultural seasons to guarantee crops. Letters written by BMS workers have commented on the rituals still enacted by some of the peoples of Peru. We saw them on the television as well. 
European Christianity has often been criticised for bringing change to traditional picturesque ceremonies. But when I saw the archaeological evidence of the sacrifices some five or six hundred years ago of young people murdered to please their gods, I was reminded that Peru is not unique in offering its best as an insurance for the future and that our God gave his best that all mankind might have wholeness, peace and the fullness of life that comes from knowing Jesus. In five areas of the world, in Africa, Asia, the Americas, Europe, Middle East with North Africa, BMS has workers who have heard God's call, who have, despite friends and often families' misgivings, decided to leave their comfort zone and step out to the often difficult and sometimes dangerous lands believing that where he takes them, he will keep them and use them and make them a blessing, so that in his time, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Just have a look at these last four slides. People wanted five years, two to four years, three months to two years, different Availability of lengths of service. All sorts of different people. Young people through to people who've recently retired. We have lots of people who've got years to give before they feel too decrepit to carry on. If you're interested, ask me for a copy of this little booklet. Is God calling you or someone in your family or your church to move out from the comfortable security of the known to the place where he wants them to serve him? We have an extraordinary God who promises to keep us, to lead us, and to use us when we trust him. To make us, like Abraham, a blessing so that in his purpose all nations of the world may be blessed. God bless you.